Good morning. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. We've got the mega lesson. It's got last week, the even and odd pages. If you weren't here last week, we had an odd handout. Um, they didn't Xerox the even pages. So we've put together last week's lesson with this week's lesson. It's just one big lesson on the papacy. So as, uh, uh, as folks uh, uh, come in, uh, uh, please don't hesitate to raise your hand if you need a lesson. You excited? I see your signs up everywhere. I saw your opponent had put a sign up in our uh, office lot, and it went straight to the trash. <laughs> this is not an endorsement for Patricia Harless. You vote for whoever you want. But if you want to talk to her about the race she's running, she's right down here. <clears throat> we are looking at the papacy. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you look at, at the Catholic Church today. How many of you um, yourselves have at some point in your life been uh, what you would consider a, a, a Roman Catholic? Okay, that's a lot. How many of you have family members Roman Catholic? That's a lot. Um, the, the, the Catholic Church is interesting to look at for me as a Protestant. Uh, I'm not Catholic, and I don't have family members that are Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic. Um, and it's interesting for me to look at. Uh, uh, some of my dearest friends are Catholic, and, and, and uh, uh, not, not one of them in particular doesn't seem to be as committed as his wife is. But that's okay. Uh, he, uh, he's sitting there on the fourth row, so I have to give Bob a hard time. <clears throat> Bob is the one who thinks the Catholic Church could take over the world if they would start buying McDonald's locations and do kind of a drive-through mass where you just you do the confession right there at the speaker where you order. The priest could be there giving it to you as you drive through. He thinks he's got a great idea. Kelly hits him and says, that's blasphemy. Quit. Um, so, I mean, that, that's as close as I get to Catholicism. But it's interesting for me because uh, uh, I'm, I've, I've got a lot of very dear friends who are Catholic. Uh, not just uh, Dr. Bob and Kelly, but a number of others. And, and you sit there and you think, okay, you compare the Catholic church structure to what we have, for example. Oh, look, they're not having element, are they? Well, that's not just element. Y'all, come on in. We got, oh yeah, look, we're going to retake role after y'all get in here. This makes our numbers look real good. Way to let us keep the chapel, not move us to the basement. Um, the, uh, the Catholic Church is interesting when you compare it to a Protestant situation like I grew up in. Because I sit there and I say, okay, how did a pope become the pope that we have? You know, where did the, the papacy come into being? Even the Catholic Church will readily say that, that the pope... Uh, as we have a pope today, is different than the pope was with, let's say, Peter, if we want to consider Peter the first pope, uh, that, that the papal office grew. And uh, um, what I'd like to do this morning, in our church history literacy class, we've actually made it from the time of the church's founding up through the mid-400s. And we've covered most of the major historical things to make us literate when it comes to church history. But I want to go back and take kind of a snapshot view of that whole process and see how the papacy has developed so that Pope Leo in 450 is who he is with the powers that he has. To do this, I divided the lesson into two parts because last week I felt that we needed the foundation of understanding what Scripture says on the issue of church governing, specifically the idea of there being a pope. And so we looked at that. It's the first half of the mega lesson you've got handed out to you. We deal with the scriptures and what I tried to do is deal with them not only in the sense of, of here I'm a Protestant and here's what I have to say about these scriptures, but also let's be objective as much as we can and say here's what the Catholic Church says about them as well. Um, uh, I will tell you, I, I email out my lessons to a number of people to get comments and thoughts. And, and one of the gentlemen that I send a lot of my lessons to for help to make sure that I'm fair uh, is, is a Catholic scholar himself. 
And uh, in fact, he's uh, 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 incredibly well trained in these areas. And so uh, I've asked him, you know, would you please help me? I want to make sure that what I'm doing is not a disservice to, to the perspective that the Catholic Church has to offer. So last week we tried to present both a Catholic and a Protestant perspective on the scriptures that are used to explain and justify and, and uh, 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 offer uh, the necessary foundation for a, a pope or, or a papal role. This week what we're going to do is we're going to look at the history that developed after the New Testament was closed and see historically what we've got that helps us understand how the, the, the papacy evolved in the first 450 years or so of the church. So we start and we go back to Vatican City, Rome, because, I mean, this is the bottom line. This, this is uh, 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 where the Pope lives. Uh, he's got a summer home, but this is where the Pope has resided for a long, long, long time, saving a bit of a stint in France... Uh, uh, the Pope has basically resided in Rome uh, since the inception. Uh, if we are to go there and make a trip, which uh, one day Steve may do, I keep pressing him to do it, uh, that's St. Peter's Basilica. You can go into St. Peter's Basilica. As Danny Way told me last week, I got on the Internet, Danny, you're right. There is a list of all of the Popes, starting with Peter. Now, they didn't do use in Old Latin. Do you know Why? Latin scholar? Aha! I actually know one piece of Latin he doesn't. Because they're doing a lot of this stuff with hammer and chisel. And you try to chisel a little U. It's a whole lot easier to make it look like a V. So that was the... And that's why if you get two of those Vs together, do you know what you have? A double U. And that's our letter W. That's a freebie. Okay. <clears throat> so if you could actually see this, it's, it looks like it says... P-E-T-R-V-S, but that V is the U, Petrus, Petrus. And it goes up, the picture I pulled off the internet stopped with John Paul I.I., but I feel assured that, that Benedict uh, the Sixteenth now has himself up on the list as well. Last week, quick review, make sure we're on the same page. Where did the word Pope come from? Originally, the Greek word was Papas. Uh, yes, it is the same Greek word of the Papa's family that owns Papacitas, Papados, Papa's Barbecue, and all the rest. It's a Greek word. They're a Greek family who make the best fajitas of any Greek person I know. Um, Papas in the Greek means father. The Latins took it and made it Papa. Uh, the hillbillies took it and made it Paul. It, it's the same basic word. Okay, um, uh, English, father, dad, okay? The idea being, of course, that the Pope is a spiritual father. Now, in the 200s, bishops, regardless of the church, anywhere you've got a bishop, oftentimes they were called papas. Uh, the church was using Greek at the time in the 200s, by and large. And so the Greek word would be used, but the, the bishops of each church... And for us, you might think of bishop as the lead pastor, senior pastor. Okay, As we get to ultimately Champion Forest Baptist Church, maybe, God willing, in a couple of years, um, uh, w w that's what we're going to see. So, you know, if Demon ever shows back up, you could call him Papa. Um, <clears throat> or if you want to really make him jump, call him Pope. Um, that's in the 200s. The bishops are called papas. Same is true in the 300s. Same is true in the 400s. It's actually in the 500s when the word starts being used strictly in dedication for the bishop of Rome. And uh, Magnus Felix in 521 is the guy that really said, hey, let's don't use this word for anybody else. We use this word for the spiritual father. So something happens in the church between the time of the New Testament and at least 500 where the bishop of Rome becomes the principal spiritual father of the church. That's what we want to talk about. Today, if you look at uh, uh, the, the Pope and you are a Catholic, you will say that the Pope has two... I can't do that for two... Two kinds of... 
authority. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't do that either. Uh, people are listening to this on the Internet wondering what I'm doing up here. Um, two kinds of authority, okay? We'll put it up here. The Pope has a magisterial authority, big word, and a jurisdictional authority. What does that mean? It means this. The Pope in the Catholic Church is the ultimate final authority on doctrine and teaching. That's the magisterial. You want to know a doctrine? You want to know the teaching? The ultimate authority in the Catholic Church is the Pope. Okay? Jurisdictional means that the Pope has the final say on church government. Who's excommunicated? Who is not? Who is a bishop? Who is not? How the government's set up. Now, if you're not Catholic, and maybe if you are, Danny said to me this morning, he says, some of what you're saying, a lot of Catholics don't know this stuff because it's just not, you know, you you may be a Catholic, but you don't necessarily sit there and learn all this stuff. Um, uh, This is church history literacy, and uh, uh, we offer it for all. But I want to say that there is a real disconnect between a Protestant mindset of the church, as, as at least we think of it within our end of Protestantism, and a Catholic mindset of the church. It's a core difference, okay? <clears throat> I was hungry when I did this, so you'll see a lot of food in today's PowerPoint. Um, a core difference between the perception of what the church is. If I were to ask a, a well-trained Protestant what he thinks the church is. Ultimately, he's going to give me some answer that it's the spiritual body. You know, I would say that I'm Catholic with a lowercase c in the sense that Catholic means universal church. Because in my Protestant mindset, the church is actually defined by God. And you want to know who's in the church? I'll tell you when we get to heaven. Because, you know, it's not who's showing up at the buildings. Y'all grew up with me in the same tradition I grew up with. This is what we understood. And this is a general Protestant understanding. The church is actually not a physical building or an earthly structure. The church is a a spiritual body that is uh, whose membership is on, on the rolls in heaven. And God puts people into the church. God adds to the church's number. Okay? That's the Protestant mentality of the church. The Catholic mentality is different. The Catholic approach is that the church is actually an organized, a visible, a juristic. By that, I mean, it's, it's like uh, got laws and, and it's, it's uh, uh, got a judicial system, if you will. A juristic, a corporate society. So when you get married, for the marriage to be valid in the Catholic church, it's got to be a Catholic church wedding. Not in the building necessarily, but it's got to be administered by a priest because it is with, it is a, it's a legal structure, the Catholic church is. It's an actual structure. And so God has set it up from a Catholic perspective, the church with laws and, and doesn't really have a police force. But it's certainly got uh, 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 people who follow the law. You want to get a marriage annulled in the Catholic Church so that you could get remarried within the purview of the Catholic Church. The annulment itself is a court procedure. And in the Catholic Church, the, 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 the folks in charge of it, seeing whether or not the annulment will be granted will actually appoint a church lawyer to represent the sanctity of the marriage itself in addition to whoever the parties may have to sit there and try and decide, was this a proper marriage? Was it truly entered into with the marriage vows of, of, uh, of, of permanence and everything else? I mean, there is, there is a, a Catholic perspective that the church is an actual organized juristic society that God has set up with rulers, if you will, or with a hierarchy of authority, maybe is a better way to say it. See, the Protestant view is that the church, we go to Champion Forest Baptist Church, the Protestant view is we come here for our nourishment. We come here to worship God corporately. 
But it's like Scott said this morning, you spend maybe an hour or two hours of your week listening to your pastor here and the other 110 some odd hours is outside. And that's a very Protestant perspective. The Catholic perspective is that no, church has a governing structure and it's been set up by Christ and there are roles for people to follow. And the church has authority over your life, whether you're in there on a Sunday or not. Because this is an authority structure. And just as Paul says not to ignore the authority of the Roman government, you know, you don't ignore the authority of the church government either. Okay? So that is a core difference and we need to understand that as we look at the development of the, the papacy and, and within the early church. Um, now, I'm going back to the New Testament for a minute. I want to remind you of one of the critical scriptures in case you weren't here. The principal scripture that's used within historical Catholicism for the role of the Pope is the one in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Johnson, son of Jonah in Aramaic. Um, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, Greek word Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. In the Catholic church mentality... Not totally. I mean, the Catholic Church, you've got to be careful. There are lots of different people with lots of different views. I mean, they got like a billion people in it, okay? So, so I, I, it's like you can't just paint me with the label of any Baptist you run across because uh, uh, that other Baptist would probably not like you for doing it. Um, <clears throat> but by and large, standard Catholicism teaches that there was a role that was given to Peter as the keeper of the keys of the kingdom, that Peter had authority to bind heaven on earth and bind earth in heaven. That in essence, Peter takes over the role of leadership of the church when Christ ascends. Jesus gives that role to Peter. And uh, um, uh, the, the other scripture that's used almost as much is the one out of John where John asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And each time Jesus says, feed my sheep. Then the final time Jesus says that Satan has asked to sift you, Peter, as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That's the commission to Peter, to strengthen his brothers, the other apostles. So Peter is the chief of the apostles according to this view of this scripture. Now, if this is a a, a famous painting of it, all right, we'll throw the painting out there. That's Jesus giving the keys to Peter, okay? If we put it up in, in, in black and white, the Catholic view is that Peter is taking Jesus's governing position over the church. Remember, in the Catholic perspective now, the church is an actual government set up. It's God's kingdom on earth with its government, okay? The Protestant view is that Jesus is going to give Peter the keys because Peter opens the door to the church on Pentecost. Peter is the one who, who has the keys and unlocks the, the, the church doors, if you will, okay? Now, that is what we've covered in a few other scriptures last week. Now we're all sort of caught up. And what I want to do is I want to start looking at some of the other uh, 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 look at some of the historical facts we have and try and chart how the church changed over the first few hundred years and how the role of the Pope uh, 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 grew during this same time. Fair? Okay. So this requires some of you who've been in this class for quite a while to go back in your memory. Um, uh, we're going to start with First Clement. First Clement is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, writing we have outside of the New Testament. In fact, written around 95 or 96 A.D., right at the time John's writing Revelation. Okay? Clement, First Clement, which is a, a letter that we have, 
there aren't many people who doubt the authority of it. I mean, it was clearly a letter. It, it is what it says it is. It was written 95 to 96 A.D. Sorry, I have a typo there. Um, in this letter, the, the letter is written to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, bless their hearts, are having some more schism problems like they had 40 years earlier when Paul was writing them. Except this time what the church in Corinth has done is the young guys have uh, uh, actually kicked out the old elders and said, we're taking over. And uh, the letter is written saying, time out, you don't do that, okay? That's, that's, this, this is the structure that's been set up. You live within this structure. And so the letter both rebukes and instructs the Corinthian church. All right? Now, let's look at it this way. The Catholic view. The Catholic view is that Clement is a pope. Clement is the bishop of the Roman church. So you've got the bishop of the church at Rome writing a letter to the Corinthians telling them to get in line. And we know through history that the Corinthians not only honored the letter and got in line, but as much as 75 years later, the Corinthian church is still reading the letter in their services because they hold it as something that, that was a message from God. So the Catholic view is that we see here Clement fulfilling Peter's role, the Petrine role of taking care of the church. Clement is, from the Catholic perspective, the third bishop of Rome. If we went back to that chart that Danny told me about that's up on the wall in, in St. Peter's, uh, the, the first pope they've listed as Peter. The second one is Linus. The third one is uh, Clement. Um, Next point, from the Catholic perspective, this letter shows that the Roman church, Clement in particular, had no problem asserting authority over the Corinthian church. Now, you all with me? You see that perspective? All right, Protestant perspective. The Protestant perspective is, this is just a letter from the church at Rome to the church at Corinth. And if you read it, it doesn't even use the name Clement. I'm not, I've got it in my briefcase. Clement's name's not even in it. It's tradition that teaches that Clement is who wrote it. And it was called the letter of Clement. But some scholars even think Clement might have been the secretary of the church. They, they, they don't know. The letter itself says, from the church at Rome to the church at Corinth. And there are churches that wrote letters to other churches Frequently, it was not unusual. It's standard for one church to write another church and say, here, get in line. Ultimately, that's what Paul was doing. Paul was writing letters to the Galatian church, to the Corinthian church, to the Roman church, saying, get in line. Okay? So that's the perspective on this. Now, first piece of evidence. Next element in the chain Let's look at uh, Ignatius of Antioch. If you remember, Antioch is this town over here. Rome is over there. Ignatius is going. He was one of the early Christian martyrs that we studied. Ignatius is going from Antioch to Rome to be killed. During that journey, you'll recall, he writes seven letters to various churches. Those letters give us good insight into church government at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm prayerful. My voice will last. I'm, I'm sick as a dog. So don't like breathing this microphone after I do for at least a day. Um, <clears throat> okay. What is useful here as we look at Ignatius' letters, they're written about 110 A.D., and you can already see changes in church structure from the New Testament time period by 110. Let's look at it this way. In the New Testament, what do we have? <coughs> Paul tells us, um, I don't know that it's possible. I don't think we're allowed to have water in here. But if there is any way that I could, I might, thank you. Y'all don't tell anybody. I was good. Bob gave it to me. She says, holy water. Uh, <laughs> I hope it helps then. 
Um, <clears throat> Paul in the New Testament set up elders, also called bishops or overseers. If you're reading an NIV translation, they translate the word overseer, and then they'll add a footnote at the bottom that says traditionally bishop. Okay? Same thing, the same office, elder and bishop or overseer. But Paul sets up a multitude of those in each church. It is not a single bishop system. It is an, an eldership, we might call it, or overseers, but it's a plurality of men who are in charge of each church. And then in addition to that church structure, there's another office that Paul sets up, and that's deacons, or also deaconesses, um, uh, uh, apparently as well. Coming from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. Most scholars say this originated, this office originated in Acts when they were having trouble getting all the widows fed and the apostles were, were having trouble getting that done with the rest of their teaching. So they picked out some good men, including Stephen, and said, this is your charge and your responsibility. So the, those are the New Testament roles that we read about. And those are the only roles we read about in the New Testament. Now, by the time we get to 110 A.D. when Ignatius is writing, there are some changes. First of all, there's only one bishop for each church at this point in time. One elder, one overseer for each church. And that's apparent from reading the letter. So we need to like cross that out. Okay, there. So at this point, by 110, you've got one particular leader, one senior pastor, one bishop over each church. The elders still exist. But the elders are under the bishop. There is in, 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 while for Paul those words were interchangeable, by 110 they're not. You have a chief bishop or pastor or overseer. And underneath that you have elders. You have people who fulfill roles underneath that of the lead bishop. And then uh, uh, below that you've got the deacons under the bishop. And so by 110, this is what you've got. Let me give you an example. Out of the seven letters, I pulled the letter to the Tralians. And here's what, uh, here's what Ignatius writes. He says, respect the bishop who is a model of God the Father. Respect your bishop. Then he says, respect the elders, plural, as God's counsel, as the band of the apostles. So your senior pastor or your bishop is your, your model of God the Father. The elders are the model of the apostles and then respect the deacons as you would Jesus Christ. That's what he writes. So I've tried to put it together in a little different form. Changes in church government. In the New Testament, you have multiple bishops or elders. You have uh, in the New Testament, uh, there we go, deacons and deaconesses that serve in a, in a service role. In the 100s, you've got now a bishop who is separated out from the eldership. And then you've got uh, uh, underneath that bishop, and by the way, the bishop, here's what he's in charge of. The bishop is in charge of worship, all aspects of worship. That doesn't mean he's the song leader too, but he decides what's going on. He puts it to, he's in charge of worship. He is the boss in charge of worship. In fact, he supervises all of the church life. And he appoints the lesser clergy. He'll appoint the deacons. He'll appoint the elders. So the bishop is in charge of the church. Okay? Then you've got the elders and the priests below, and they preside at this point in the 100s, at the beginning of the 100s. Sometimes you've got a bishop who's in charge of a city. And there may be some smaller outlying parishes or churches. And so those churches don't get their own bishop. What they do is he'll send out one of the elders to preach or to administer the sacraments or to do whatever needs to be done. And so that's what the elders start doing. Um, the deacons and the deaconesses, uh, especially in the east and the west, the deaconesses never catch on that big. Okay? In the eastern part of the church, they really minister to the women. You've got women ministering to women in a more direct fashion. Uh, and they're the deaconesses. So that's the church structure you've got in the 100s. Now, 
let's progress through the 100s. A next core piece of historical data we've got is a writing by a fella. I think our battery is almost gone. A writing by a fella. Here it is. Named Saint Irenaeus of Lyon. Saint Irenaeus. If you recall, we had a lesson in him when we were talking about the Gnostic heresies. He wrote a book entitled Against the Heresies. Now, the Gnostic heresy, this is before everybody's got their NIV Bibles. They can't get online and get the, the, the Holy Word that way. There aren't a lot of copies. And there's still some dispute over which scriptures are considered New Testament canon and which are not which allowed there to be a lot of heresy floating around. The Gnostic heresy was particularly repugnant to God and to Orthodox Christianity because it taught that all human matter is evil, that only spiritual and knowledge things are good. It taught that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. It taught that Jesus Christ was not fully God and fully man. And so it was a very bad heresy. And the worst part about it is the way the Gnostics would teach is they would say, Come here. I'm going to tell you a secret nobody else knows. I got this secret from my uh, uncle. He knew Peter. They were like this. They weren't going to let anybody else know the secrets. It's just, it's kind of a club thing. Even has a handshake. Let me show you. You know, and and they, would, they would give this idea that they had some secret knowledge other people didn't have. And this was really affecting the church. And so Irenaeus writes a book against it. It's called Against the Heresies. And here's what he says. He says, look, I knew Polycarp. And Polycarp was appointed to be the bishop of Smyrna by John, the apostle John. And Polycarp told me all of these things that John taught him. And Polycarp had visited with so many people who had seen and interacted with the resurrected Christ. And there is no doubt, no doubt, but that the apostles appointed bishops to succeed them. And that those bishops that were appointed were appointed because they knew the apostolic word. They knew what the apostles taught. They knew what was right and they knew what was true. And they were set forward in their faith firm enough to where they could lead the church. That's why they were selected. And before those bishops passed away, they selected other bishops. So don't go off and believe my uncle so-and-so who secretly behind a tree got this fantastic word of knowledge. No. If you want to know about Jesus Christ, talk to the people who have been entrusted with the message of Jesus Christ. That's what he writes. In the process of writing it, he says, for instance, at the Church of Rome, the bishop right now at the Church of Rome is the twelfth bishop from Peter. Let me list them. Peter appointed Linus. Linus appointed bam, 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 bam. And he lists them. He says, I could do the same thing in all of the churches and trace it back to the apostles. So you know that the message being preached by these people is the accurate message of Jesus Christ. Now the Catholic perspective on this is as follows. The Catholics will say, look, when he lists the bishops, he chooses Rome as the church to list the bishops from. Only Rome. Doesn't list the bishop connection anywhere else. But from Rome, he lists it straight from Peter. And then also, Irenaeus says, with, as regards Rome, because of its superior origin, all the churches must agree with it. So from the Catholic perspective, this is giving an anoint, or recognizing the anointing that was on the Roman church, that it's the church that all churches should agree with. Protestant perspective. No. The Roman church is a well-known church. I mean, this guy's up in Gaul. Rome is still the center. The empire is still based in Rome. Rome is the, the, the center of the hub. Of, it's like the Lubbock of, of its day. It's the hub. You know, if Lubbock is the hub of the plains and the plains are the hub of the country, I guess Lubbock's the center of the country. In that way, you know, Rome was the hub of the wheel. Okay? And so it's everybody's going to know Rome. Anybody who gets the book can know Rome. Anybody can check Rome out. It's a very handy one to list. 
And, and, and Irenaeus does say, if space permitted, I could do this for every church everywhere. But Rome was the oldest. It's the most well-known church in the region. And it had very clear roots that clearly went back to Peter and to Paul. Because both of them were there. So you've got the Pauline message, you've got the Petrine message, and that's why. There should be no dispute over the message that the Roman church has. And that's why it has superior origin. It's not just a church that was founded by missionaries. It was a church founded with Paul and Peter as its formation. And you can't beat that origin. Hard to. Okay, next reference as we go through history. Polycarp. Polycarp was a martyr in the mid-100s. He was a very dear man. He was the guy, if you recall the story, got arrested in the farmhouse finally. And uh, it's a a story that I still can't read without uh, tears welling up in my eyes. Uh, An incredibly godly man who uh, uh, just absolutely blows me away. But Polycarp, before he got arrested, in fact, a few decades before, there was a fight going on in the church about how you dated Easter. Should you date Easter by the Jewish Passover? recognizing that Easter Sunday would have been, uh, you know, tied to, to uh, the Passover itself, right? Or, by the way, if you date it by the Jewish calendar, Easter Sunday doesn't always fall on Sunday, right? Or should you go ahead and round it to the Sunday the way the Roman church was doing, because, and, and not just the Roman church and others, because you want to celebrate Easter on the first day of the week, honoring the fact that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. What do you do? The church is in disarray. There's a big fight over it. Well, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, actually makes a visit to the bishop of Rome, travels to Rome to, to, to deal with the bishop of Rome on this issue and say, okay, we got to find a, an answer here. And so um, he travels to consult with the bishop. Here's the Catholic view. That shows the preeminence of the bishop of Rome. Polycarp went to the Bishop of Rome. That's a long way to travel just to ask someone for a consultation on a date. Uh, The Protestant view is that church leaders were always consulting each other. And it's clear that Rome was the center of the viewpoint for Easter Sunday as opposed to uh, a Jewish dating of Easter. So you go to the center of that viewpoint And uh, it's interesting, the way Eusebius wrote it up, the conclusion of it, the Protestants will point to. Here's the conclusion, quote, Polycarp could not persuade the Pope, nor could the Pope Polycarp. In other words, they just agreed to disagree. And so the Protestants will say, if in fact the view was that the Pope is the final authority on doctrine and teaching, and that's why Polycarp went to see the Bishop of Rome, then Polycarp would have left saying, hey, you know, the bishop has spoken, we will follow. And that's not what happened. So, now let's go back to our chart. In the 100s then, <clears throat> you have bishops, you have elders, priests, deacons, and deaconesses. Also in the 100, a very clear line is drawn that separates out the laity. You start having paid clergy. And that makes a huge difference. The bishop even escalates further in authority when you consider the bishops in charge of not only appointing all the clergy, but paying them. Bishop's got a lot of authority then, right? Uh, it wasn't, uh, uh, I got a, a phone call Friday from someone who thought their employer was doing something illegal. They reported their employer and now they're worried they're going to get fired. And uh, what the employer is doing is not firing them because they know they are not allowed to retaliate against someone for ratting on them. Instead, they're just making life so miserable that the person will quit. Okay? Um, and I said, yeah, it sounds like what may be going on. And we have recourse for that. They didn't back then. They didn't have our court system set up the way we do with our laws. And so, you know, the the bishop had an incredible amount of power over you when he wrote your check. Because it's not like you're going to go get unemployment if you get canned. All right? That's transpires in the 100s. Now, let's go into the 200s for a minute. In the 200s, you've still got the bishop, you've still got the elders and the priests, you've still got the deacons and the deaconesses, but the church has grown massively. The church is getting starting to permeate the Roman Empire and they've got a whole bunch of new offices that they're adding. 
which also adds to the control of the deacon, I mean of the, the bishop, because he's got to pay and hire all of these. I mean, they've got subdeacons. They've got acolytes. They've got exorcists. That was a job back in the 200s. What do you do for a living? I'm an exorcist. You like pea soup? Um, <laughs> readers. They have readers who'd carry the Bible. They had janitors. That was a job description in the church. And the janitors, in fact, sometimes doubled as the grave diggers. One of the huge things the church did is they provided burials for their people when a lot of society did not. Now, also in the 200s, a new development happens in church government that's huge. Okay, i got to move. Um, it, 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 there's synods, the synods. It's where um, a group of, of bishops and church leaders would get together to vote on an issue. In other words, instead of just being one bishop, the issue's getting big, it's getting complicated, there are lots of, uh, you know, what's right, what's wrong. Well, let's get together a convention of, of bishops and other churchmen, elders and priests, and let's bring them together. And, and what do we do? <laughs> we vote on what's right. Okay. Now, you've got a synod, and you're going to vote on what's right. You're going in there. What do you want? You want to win. You want the votes. So the bishops of the more populated area who have more money, that can hire more people, that have more jobs, that have more subdeacons and more deacons, become much more powerful through these synods because they're bringing in a lot of votes. If we were going to elect the president of the United States... And the only two places that were voting were Texas and Rhode Island. I don't think anybody from Rhode Island would ever get elected. Because I don't think they could carry enough votes from Texas. See, the way our government set up its structure, that's the whole reason we have a Senate in addition to Congress. Our Congress is based on population. But the Senate, each state gets two, right? Regardless of population, to try and be some type of a balance. Back then, they'd bring everybody. So if the goal is to get the votes, then you start courting and you start endearing yourself. You start, I won't say sucking up because this is uh, uh, supposed to be a holy thing going on, but you do start engendering favor. Get the votes. And I put up a yo-yo because the popularity of the Bishop of Rome is a yo-yo during this time period. Sometimes even with the same fellow, like this Carthage bishop named Cyprian. See, from the Catholics' view, people would always go to the Pope or the Bishop of Rome and ask his viewpoint because he's the Pope. And you'll find lots of people saying, Hey, Rome, would you side with us? on this synod and on this vote? And what are your thoughts about this issue? And where do you land? And how are you going to vote? And are you bringing all of those guys? Over and over, bishops do ask Rome for their opinions and support. And so from the Catholic perspective, this shows the, the primacy of the, the Pope. From the Protestant perspective, this is just an all-out effort to get the votes. I mean, you, you go to who you need to go to. You do what you got to do. And, and if Rome would side with your request, then those, those writers would say, hey, we've got Rome. Man, this is the guy that, that, you know, Peter at a point, he's in the line of succession from Peter. And the Pope becomes real important if the Pope's on your side. Cyprian, man, the Pope, when the Pope sided with Cyprian, the Pope was, or the Bishop of Rome was the first among bishops. But when the Bishop of Rome would not side with you. The attitude was, that's Bishop of Rome. Who gives a rip? The guy's just tucked away up there anyway. And they'd badmouth him. This is like Cyril from Alexandria lifts up the Pope, you recall, until the Pope comes down on his successor, Doscarus, who, who all of a sudden excommunicates the Pope. Says, eh, Bishop of Rome, you're excommunicated from the church. So it's kind of a yo-yo. It's up and down. Meanwhile, what's happening? Okay, we've got to cruise through this. Uh, the church is becoming more and more a legal structure. It's taking on Roman law. 
Okay? If, we, if, if the church is being, if Roman Empire is being divided between East and West at this point in time in history, you've got Rome ruling, you've got Constantinople ruling, but ultimately what you've got is, is uh, the church actually becoming part of the government because Constantine comes in the 300s and makes the church legal and then becomes a Christian and then ultimately the church becomes the official Roman religion and all the other religions are deemed pagan and outlawed. And once that happens, the, the, the emperor who had always been the head of the Roman religion, remember the reason Christians could be persecuted is they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord or God. Now all of a sudden Caesar is a Christian. But in his mind, he's still head of the, the, the religion. It's just the religion's now Christianity. That's why you have the emperors who are calling the councils. And you have the emperors who are presiding over them. Council of Nicaea, the big council. Who presided over it? It was Constantine, the emperor, who called it and presided over it. Who would enforce the decrees? It would be the emperor. So now all of a sudden, whoops, you've got the government. Oh, let me get back. I messed up. Um, you've got the government and you've got the division here. And the emperor in, in the, the east over here, he's real strong. He keeps control of his kingdom and his church. The emperor in the west, the west is falling apart. That emperor can't keep his kingdom. He can't keep the church. He can't keep anything. In fact, in the West, you've got uh, Alaric sacking Rome in 410. You've got all of these uh, uh, Goths coming in. You've got vandals coming up through Africa. You've got all sorts of problems happening. And the West is in shambles. And the West is falling apart. And so the bishop of Rome becomes more and more powerful. Because he keeps his kingdom. He's paying out his bishops. He's paying out all of his people. He's got all of those reporting to him. And he grows. And, and, and he's taking care of the people too. When the government's falling. I'll tell you, when Attila the Hun comes to sack Rome, it's Pope Leo who goes out and talks him out of it. In 450. So... Um, Here's what you've got in the 300s. You've got the bishop, you've got the elders and priests, deacons and deaconesses, but you've got a new person in the church. You've got the emperor. Pontifex Maximus, the great pontiff, the high priest. That was the label that the emperor had before Christianity took over. After Christianity, in the east at least, he still considered himself that. Excuse me. Church government then becomes modeled after Roman law. Now, let me give you one last slide and then we'll do points for home because I know we're about out of time. Um, Pope Leo comes into the picture here in 450. He's the power behind the rulings of Chalcedon, the council that that established Jesus as fully man. He had written the the key letter. he controls most of Italy at this point in time. The, the emperor of the West just really doesn't have much control. He's got the bishops. He's got the whole church system reports to him. And uh, uh, he's in control over there. Uh, he negotiates with Attila the Hun. He's taking care of the people. He's providing for their safety. And <clears throat> he holds full authority over all of these churches at this point in time. They all look to him for their finances. They look to him for their money. And they look to him for his leadership. So Leo... A lot of scholars consider the first real fully active pope in the sense that we have. He also was able to get uh, the Valentinian III was a very weak emperor. He gets Valentinian III to pass a law that says, in essence, that, that uh, not in essence, says bluntly that Leo is the successor to Peter. Okay? And here's the way he does it. He uses the Roman laws of inheritance for the argument. Okay, In other words, if I die... Um, under the Texas Laws of Inheritance, uh, 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 Becky and, and our children get whatever the will provides they get. Now, who gets my personality? Okay, don't say thankfully no one. Um, <clears throat> nobody. Who gets all of my shortcomings and falls? Nobody. Okay? Same thing. Peter's property was, was this office of the church. When Peter died, he gave that authority or that property, it was inherited by his successor that he designated, the bishop. 
And this line of succession is continued. Now, nobody got his personality. Nobody got his faults or his strengths. And that's why you'll have good popes. You'll have sorry popes. But popes have the responsibility through the laws of inheritance is the argument that was made by Leo and adopted by the Roman emperor. And that's how he gets this authority. Um, so uh, uh, we've got to skip through this. Let's get to points for home. I will tell you this as we're cruising through it. The different titles that the uh, uh, church directory lists for the Vatican, we've covered um, um, those uh, three of them. Actually, those four. That's when he gets them. Doesn't get Patriarch of the West yet. Doesn't get Primate of Italy yet. Doesn't get Archbishop yet and Sovereign of the State of Vatican City yet. Those are for later. Now, points for home. And then uh, I'm sorry I've kept you a couple minutes late. Authority is in the church for the church. And we've got to figure out what kind of authority structure we want, what kind of authority structure we think is right from God. But clearly there is some authority structure within the church. You know, Peter said, Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your, your care, serving as overseers. He's talking to bishops, elders. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to. Don't be greedy for money. Be eager to serve. Don't lord it over those entrusted to you. Be examples to them. That's what leaders are to be. Church leaders should uh, uh, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit's made you bishops or overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then uh, last point for home. While we honor church authority... I urge everyone to remember the real overseer of the church is Christ himself. That's the real authority. And Peter said it best. Peter said in 1 Peter, he, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Quoting Isaiah. You were like sheep going astray but now you've returned to the shepherd and the bishop or overseer of your souls. And that's Jesus. He is the bishop. Make sense? Maybe. It at least shows how the Catholic Church is evolving with the papal role. Pray with me briefly. Lord, I pray your blessings on this class, on everyone in here, people who have needs that I don't know, that, uh, that, that haven't expressed them. Lord, touch their hearts. Meet their needs. Grow them up spiritually. Invigorate them. Give them confidence as a shepherd. You care for them individually. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.